It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. In London, this is The Economist. You're listening to Tasting Menu, a mouth-watering medley of the week's stories dished up every Monday. I'm Anne McElvoy, head of Economist Radio, and on today's menu... The Merkel era is ending, but as Angela exits, who's waiting in the wings? How artificial intelligence could transform your daily commute? And the treasures not lost, but found in translation. But first, our cover story. America is preparing to go to the polls tomorrow, more divided and angry than it's been in decades. Each side has routinely demonised the other, and the campaign has been tainted by the sending of pipe bombs and a mass shooting in a synagogue. Amid this poisonous atmosphere, we made the case for why these midterm elections matter. Toxic federal politics is America's great weakness. It prevents action on pressing real issues from immigration to welfare. It erodes Americans' faith in their government and its institutions and it dims the beacon of American democracy abroad. Mr Trump didn't start this downward spiral, but he's done his best to accelerate it. All politicians stretch the truth. Mr Trump lies with abandon. His deceit is so brazen and effective that many of his supporters take his word above any of his critics, especially those in the media, and seemingly in the face of all the evidence. Mr. Trump is also willfully divisive. When your opponents are simply bad people, the compromise that is the foundation of all healthy politics becomes hard within parties and almost impossible between them. This toxic polarisation isn't confined to one party or one branch of government. Congress caught the bug in the 1990s when Newt Gingrich was Speaker. The media have also fallen victim to partisan scepticism. Now the Supreme Court is perceived to be partisan too. A dishonest executive, conniving with a fawning legislature and empowered by a partisan judiciary, were it to come to that, America truly would be in grave trouble. We argued that to stop the rot, the Democrats need to take the House tomorrow for the sake of both parties. Mr Trump should be subject to congressional oversight. Defeat would encourage some Republicans to start putting forward a conservative alternative to Trumpism. America will not mend its politics in a single election, but the right result in the midterm elections could point the way. But the much-fated blue wave many Democrats have been anticipating may not arrive. For our briefing on the internal divisions hobbling the party, read this week's Economist. As one of our beloved listeners, you can also subscribe with our special offer. It's 12 issues for $12 or £12. Just go to economist.com slash radio offer. Over in our Europe section, our Ireland correspondent reported on a rather different election of a very different president. 
In the hard Scrabble Ireland in which Michael D. Higgins grew up, it was not considered wise to have notions about yourself to aspire to greater things, intellectually or culturally. But Mr Higgins, who was re-elected for a second term as President of Ireland on October 26th, had notions from an early age. He started writing poetry, found his way as a mature student into University College Galway and launched himself into parallel careers as a sociology lecturer and a Labour politician. His style is far from fashionable. In public life, his flamboyant intellectualism and somewhat long-winded oration might have counted as notions against him. His socialism seems at odds with the general political drift of a state that has been ruled by centre-right parties ever since it was born in 1921. And he stood in stark contrast to his rivals for the largely ceremonial position. Three were all performers from the Irish version of the reality TV show Dragon's Den. Each one argued that as a successful businessman, he would make a fine president. They clearly hadn't mastered the art of the deal. Continuity in Ireland, but mainland Europe is reaching the end of an era. After 18 years, Angela Merkel has announced that she's giving up the leadership of her party and she won't stand again as Chancellor of Germany. So, on The Economist Asks, we asked, what's next for Germany and for Europe? One of our guests was Joschka Fischer, former German foreign minister and a long-time leader of the Green Party. I asked him Henry Kissinger's famous question. Now that Merkel's stepping down, if I want to speak to Europe, who should I call? You will be well advised to call her, but also uh, since more than a year, you would be well advised to call Paris. So Mr. Macron is the beneficiary, possibly, in European power. Come on, this is the traditional British view. We are not in Europe in the 18th century any longer. If Berlin goes down, Paris goes up, and so on, that's not the reality. Berlin and Paris are extremely important, both of them. Angela Merkel, for the time being, will stay in office. And as long as she's in the office, she will play an important role in the EU. But there is also a new young French president who has changed the landscape in France. Is he right? Does Macron take her place in Europe? Or is Merkel, well, irreplaceable? And who's hankering to succeed her? Subscribe to Economist Radio on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to hear The Economist Asks. As Angela prepares to ride off into the sunset, we turned our attention to Harley Davison, the great maker of motorbikes. But as our Money Talks podcast found, their engines are stalling. Our Midwest correspondent, Vendeline von Bredo. Sales have now declined for 16 consecutive quarters. And the last quarter was no exception. Sales actually plunged by 13%. So investors are rather worried about the state of Harley. The main Harley fan group consists of grizzled white middle-aged men. So they need to appeal more to a younger group, to millennials and to women and minorities. And they're trying to do that. But so far, I think it's a bit of an uphill battle at the moment. A few too many greybeards among the Hells Angels these days. Money Talks is published every Tuesday. And as an easy rider, you can always hop on board. Our science and tech podcast, Babbage, meanwhile, rejected the lure of the open road for the joy of trains. 
Miki Kobayashi of our Tokyo Bureau took us along on her daily commute. I am currently at Otomochi Station, which is one of Tokyo's largest train stations as well as one of the busiest in metropolitan Tokyo. Now, as the train is approaching, as the train is coming into Otomochi Station, the people that are waiting to board the train usually wait very politely for their turn, usually in twos. They usually wait at the sides of the doors of the train and wait for people to exit the train first. A far cry from the chaos of my London commute, but once again, artificial intelligence might prove a solution. Apparently, the problem often isn't with the trains, it's with the crowds of commuters. Dr. Plaman Angeloff of the University of Lancaster explained. So, starting from computerized analysis of the CCTV footage on the coaches, but also on platforms as well, we were able to, in real time, estimate the level of busyness and inform the passengers who are waiting for the train, as well as staff, if some emergency occurs. Can't come soon enough for me. Babbage is published every Wednesday. On we ride to our Asia section, where it turns out that Japan isn't just a good place to be a commuter. A few laps of the pool can help prevent diseases in later life, stave off obesity and maintain ageing joints. For dogs as well as humans claims One One or Woof Woof Fitness, a sports club for pooches west of Tokyo. In parts of Tokyo, it is rare to see a dog unclothed. Socks or shoes to protect paws from perils like broken glass are becoming popular. The pet pampering industry is purring along. Since 2003, there have been more pets than humans under 15 in Japan. Kazuhiro Miyamoto of Kansai University estimates that the cat craze alone contributes 2.3 trillion yen to the economy, if one includes such things as tourism to Japan's dozen-odd cat islands. It seems that Japan's greying population is crying out for company. Masahiro Yamada, a sociologist, puts the popularity of pets down to changes in the Japanese family. People have fewer relatives or don't get the affection they crave from them. People have a need, he says. Some dead doggies are even given a place in the Butsudan, the Buddhist shrine that families keep at home to pay respects to deceased relatives. And finally, this week's obituary encountered a woman whose life's work was to be almost entirely invisible, the literary translator Anthea Bell. At the desk where she worked in her small house in Cambridge, she looked out at the garden through two panes. One was modern, perfectly transparent, the other old, with small, distorting flaws. She felt she was the second, interpreting freely rather than literally. What mattered was to spin the illusion that the books she translated had originally been written, even thought, in English. She would take on anything except poetry. The wild novellas of Stefan Schweig, a neglected Austrian writer, were balanced by the anarchic fun of the Asterix comics, her main work for years. Invisibly, as before, she presented the cascading jokes and puns of the indomitable Gaulish villagers as if they had been minted in English. Thus, Ide Fix, Asterix's dog, became Dogmatix, Assurance Turix, the bard, 
Cacophonix, and Panoramix, the druid, Getafix. After the title page, of course, she disappeared, but she inhabited every scene. Perhaps she was in Zebal's Salle des Pas Perdus in Antwerp Central Station, where the railway passengers seemed to me somehow miniaturized, whether by the unusual height of the ceiling or because of the gathering dusk. Or perhaps she was giggling behind the tree where Cacophonic sat, gagged and fuming, at the end of most Asterix adventures, while beer horns were raised at a great village feast and wild boar rapturously devoured. In French, scrotch, scrotch, or English, scrunch. That's the end of this week's tasting menu, but the feast continues at economist.com. And if you like the sound of us, please take a moment to give us a rating on your Apple podcast or wherever you listen. We really do appreciate it. I'm Anne McElvoy in London. This is The Economist. 